God, as we come into this space, may we continue to breathe. May we continue to know that we are in a space that we have welcomed you here as you have welcomed us. May we be fully present to your presence. May today be more than about intellectual pursuit, but may we desire, may we crave something deeper, something richer, something of your very spirit, that you might speak to us, that we might hear, that we might act. May it be so, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So uh, before we jump into the uh, formal teaching part of uh, today, I uh, want to do a couple shout-outs. First is, uh, how many of you were here last week for Crosswalk Moth? That was extraordinary. I saw it uh, from my hotel room and just want to thank you again uh, for being great sports. And this is going to be a thing, you know, for the foreseeable future for Crosswalk. We took a big risk on it last August. We didn't know if it was going to be, you know, uh, a fail or not. And it was just wonderfully rich. And we tried it again this year, and it was wonderfully rich. And so I want to say thank you uh, to, to two types of people here. Uh, those of you who shared, uh, it for some of you especially, it took great vulnerability and courage uh, for you to get up and tell your story of new beginning. And I know it was difficult uh, for some of you. I could, from the video, I could see, you know, the passion and the torture <laughs> uh, that it was for you to share some of what you said. And so I thank you for that. Thank you for modeling vulnerability uh, because it's hard to do, but it is so important to do. And then I want to thank uh, Crosswalk for being the kind of place where that kind of vulnerability is safe and appreciated and welcome. Uh, it, takes, it takes vulnerability on the part of the audience, too, to receive uh, such vulnerable statements. It, it is a relationship, and I thank you for being that kind of a, of a, of a community uh, that, that allows for that and wants it and applauds it literally and in your spirit. So you're, you're just an awesome church, and I thank you so much for doing that. So let's give, give you a hand uh, for that. And the other thing, uh, I was reminded of this this week. Lynn and I uh, flew back with our kids uh, to the Kansas City area uh, to celebrate and honor my father-in-law, who uh, he had his birthday back in November, but uh, we wanted to do uh, a, a good party for him for his 90th birthday, uh, which we did in Lawrence, Kansas, at his home church, First Baptist Church of Lawrence, Kansas. And it was great. Uh, his entire family was there, uh, minus uh, one son-in-law, who will never be forgotten for his fail on that. Uh, but the rest of us were there, and it was this delightful time. Uh, the family was at least half of the people who showed up for that party in the fellowship hall of the church or multi-purpose room. And the, most of the rest from the church uh, were from his Sunday school class uh, called the Sojourners. Now, this church is kind of peculiar and unique. At one time, uh, this church had 17 retired pastors uh, in attendance. And it's not that big of a church, a similar-sized crosswalk, I think. Uh, and I want to tell you, the idea of 17 retired pastors in a church, that, that's a horror film, man. I mean, I cannot... <laughs> Imagine having to pastor in that environment. So hats off to Matt Studemont for his work there. 
So uh, years ago, uh, a retired pastor uh, started this Sunday school class called Sojourners. And it was a place primarily for pastors to come <laughs> and finally be able to speak their minds and finally be able to say, I'm not too sure about this, finally to finally ask questions and to have honest dialogue with each other in a safe space. By the way, this church is similar to us and, and, it's, uh, and its progressive stance and all that stuff. So it kind of makes sense that this would happen. And as I was listening to that, I was, I was thinking two things. One is, man, that's a real bummer uh, that there have been pastors who spent probably their whole career who've had to keep tight-lipped about their questions and about their insights, things that they'd learned that they know are too dangerous to share. And because I've been involved in leading pastoral groups for decades, uh, I know that that's true, that I would go lead a group wherever in Northern California, and I'd talk about some of the things that we've experimented with here and stance we've taken, how we got there. And I can't tell you how many times the pastors around those tables have said we could never do that where we are because the deacon board uh, would hand me my papers or I'd be, I'd be run out with tar and feathers, that kind of a thing, because it's just too dangerous to poke the bear of tradition or to mess with orthodoxy or to ask questions about the Bible and this kind of a thing. And I know my own sister uh, struggled with that, and we'd talk shop. She just retired as a pastor. Christmas Eve was her last, her last hurrah. And uh, she would talk about how difficult it was uh, and how she didn't do what I did. Uh, and part of the reason was because the context wouldn't allow it uh, for her. And so I just want to celebrate um, a, a shared, courageous act of vulnerability on our part. Uh, over the years, you know, Crosswalk is not what it was in 1999 when I showed up. It was evangelical slash fundamental in its theology and its practice and the way that it did things. That's not who we are anymore. And it, it was an act of courage on all parts. I had to choose to take the risk about being vulnerable with what I was thinking and seeing and studying and feeling, and you had to take the risk of being courageous and vulnerable to hear it and decide to wrestle with me with it, and I think that's why we haven't blown up over 25 years together. It's because we have grown together on this journey of discovery and curiosity. So I just, my heart just swelled in, in gratitude for you when I was there thinking about how lucky I am uh, to have a church like Crosswalk and how fortunate we are to have Crosswalk where we can ask uh, honest questions and, and voice our opinions. And, and I just want to say, if you're visiting, you don't have to agree with everything I say. You have the right to be wrong. And that's, uh, I'm kidding, 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 totally kidding. Uh, you don't have to agree with me. You can have your, your space and place, and that's totally cool, and I'm all for it. Uh, but I just wanted to say that as a shout out to about who we are. All right. So, um, this whole uh, series, I, I really went back and forth throughout December about which way I wanted to go, and I had like three different options, things I was really playing with, and I landed on this primarily for this reason. This book, Simplicity, Spirituality, and Service, is written by Bruce Epperly, just came out in November, and I think he had 2024 in mind. This is the same author that wrote that blue book on prayer that we did uh, in the fall. I, I know him, I like him, he's a grounded guy. 
He's incredibly brilliant. He's a scholar. He's a theologian. He's written 80 books. <laughs> so the guy is, has a lot to say, apparently, <laughs> and must put it in print, I guess. Um, but, but I also like that he's so approachable, uh, and anybody can have a conversation with him. He actually hails from our tradition uh, as well, uh, going back to his days growing up in Salinas, of all places, uh, which is interesting, and then in San Jose for a spell. So I think he's, he's wanting to help us uh, with his book, and I'm hoping this will help all of us, including myself, enter into 2024 uh, centered and able to be and speak shalom into our culture, because I am very confident uh, that 2024 is going to be a very wild ride. Uh, we're still going to have environmental crises that are not dealt with seriously. We're still going to have humanitarian crises that are not going to be dealt with adequately. There's still going to be the war between Russia and Ukraine, which is not just between Russia and Ukraine, tech, you know, uh, maybe officially, but it's not. Uh, they have a lot more players involved, and America is one of those players. Uh, Israel and Gaza, Israel and Hamas, Israel and the Palestinians, that's going to be roaring well into 2024, even though we wish it would stop uh, two months ago or more. And you may have heard there's an election coming up in November. <laughs> and that promises to do exactly what elections have done uh, to our country in the recent decades, which is to divide us to send us into our corners, to make us choose sides and fail to talk to each other, and in the process, dehumanize each other. I don't want that. I don't want any more of that. I'm, ti I'm so tired of that, and I'm tired for getting played by that system, which I have been. And so I've been, my heart has just been crying. What can we do so that we're mindful going into this so that we don't get sucked into the culture wars and we stay centered and focused and grounded on the way of Jesus, which is the way of shalom, and allow the Spirit of God to guide us into shalom, that shalom might increase where we are. So that's my hope, and I'll probably fail a little bit here and there, but that's, that's my hope going in. To get us there, uh, there's something that uh, Epperly makes very clear in this very first chapter. I'm going to lightly allude to it. I'm going to be taking the focus of his chapters each week, so this week I'm looking at chapter one and subsequent chapters each uh, coming week. Um, so it's not going to be a total dive into it because the book's not quite that friendly. I think it's an easy-to-read book, but uh, not so much like the prayer book, which is a daily kind of a reading. But anyway, uh, this had to deal with understanding the necessity of the Spirit of God uh, in our Christian faith, which sounds ridiculous that we'd even have to say, but in our Western culture, uh, we, we focus so much on intellectual understanding and struggle so much with the greater other that is God that sometimes we completely neglect the Spirit of God which is the life of everything in favor of just getting our orthodoxy straight or our religious way of thinking straight and in our opinion right and so I'm gonna throw some verses at you just take a couple minutes but I want you to see uh, the development of this theme starting from the creation poem in Genesis chapter 1. This poem probably showed up somewhere around 800 BCE in that neck of the woods, but it wasn't brought together until about 400 BCE. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. 
and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. But the activity of God that was happening here, the exchange, was at the direction of the Spirit. The Gospel of John would, would refer to the Spirit of God as the Word of God. It's that, that action of speaking into creation, of bringing to life by the will and voice of God. It's the Spirit of God that is bringing creation into being. That's what the poem wants us to see. Centuries later, after Israel has been through a mess of oppression, Joel starts off his prophecy saying, you've really messed it up. You weren't paying attention to what you were supposed to be and do as the people of God, and it caught up with you. So he says, before he gets to this, he says, so here's what you got to do. You got to own up you know, to who you've been and how you've been. Repent, turn it around. That's what repent means. It's like a 180-degree turn. Stop doing the things that were destroying you and start doing the life-giving things that the Spirit always calls you to, which is shalom. And then he says, once you start to get this back online, this is what's going to happen. And he's speaking on behalf of God here. I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and, and daughters will prophesy. I say that with significance because this is a time in history when women were not treated as equals at all. They were treated as property. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. In those days I will pour out my spirit even on servants, many of whom were foreigners and not Jewish, men and women again alike. So this is a very expansive view of who God was for and with, long before Pentecost showed up after Jesus, long before we talked about inclusion in so many ways, this was already clearly, and in many other cases in the Bible, and the Old Testament, this was already clearly in the vision of what God wanted to do. Then we catch up with Mark's gospel. Uh, this is a story that probably happened somewhere around 30 common era. The messenger this messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. This was a cleansing baptism, as you can see. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. The reason we're given this detail, if you're unfamiliar with it or sounds weird, is because when we see this picture of John, we're supposed to remember the, pro the greatest prophet of old, Elijah, who dressed just like that and ate locusts and wild honey. We're supposed to see in John that prophet Elijah coming back to announce the coming of the next one, which is what we're going to see here in a second. John announced, Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice said from heaven, from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Mark is a little different 
than Matthew and Luke in that Mark has no birth narrative of Jesus. Whereas Matthew and Luke put a lot of focus and energy on a miraculous conception, Mark focuses our attention on a miraculous transformation of Jesus, kind of like what I've been talking about, I think, where something happened in this experience, this physical experience of turning it around, that it's sort of like the heavens opened up for Jesus and his life was utterly transformed by the presence of God and it set him on a new course. But the other thing you need to know here is a different level of fulfillment. Jesus in his day, this is hard for us to understand because we have so uh, supernaturalized, I guess that's a word, Jesus, that we can't appreciate his real humanity. Jesus was one of those guys walking around the Galilee region, which is northern uh, Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. He was one of those guys that people in his day would look at and say, there's no way God's going to use that guy. He's too poor. He doesn't have what it takes. Uh, nobody's thinking that, that any anointing is going to happen on Jesus. He was nothing special in his day. All the ideas about his childhood came much, much later. So if we just go with Mark for a second and ride, let, let Mark speak. We have a very, very extremely poor carpenter showing up to respond to what John the Baptist is doing. And if you want to, you've heard me say this before, if you come here much, if you want a good image in your head of, uh, of what Jesus would have looked like in our culture, go to Home Depot on any day of the week to get a piece of lumber and look in the parking lot across the street and see the day laborers who are hoping to get picked up for a job. See a person with brown skin see a person who is just hoping to get some work today to put food on the table. That's Jesus. Not the image that we have of Clark Kent, you know, who secretly <laughs> is holding back, you know, his true nature. So this thing happened to Jesus. Uh, even him, he experiences the prophecy fulfilled that Joel was talking about in his own presence, and it changed his life. He went on, did his thing. We've talked lots about that. Uh, years later, about 15 or so years later, actually what you'll see is about 20 years later, the Apostle Paul who had his own breakthrough moment of the Spirit of God in his life that radically transformed him from a hater of all things Jesus to his greatest advocate. Uh, he was zipping around uh, the Mediterranean region, uh, starting new communities of faith, and he rolls into Corinth or in, into Ephesus, and this is what happened. While Apollos, one of his partners, was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Well, then what baptism did you experience? He asked. And they replied, the baptism of John. And Paul said, well, John's baptism called for repentance from sin. But John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men and all. This community of Jesus followers was getting along just fine, being all about learning the way of Jesus, the ethics the way of interpreting scripture, the intellectual side, what that meant in terms of how they lived their lives. But they had no idea of this other much greater thing that the gospel of Jesus was all about, which is that God really, 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 really loves you and that God is really, really, all those reallys, with you. And the Spirit of God is for you, animating you, 
strengthening you, guiding you if you'll have it. And these people were totally oblivious to that. So it's like all of a sudden they have this happen, and those signs that we see, tongues and prophecies and all that, all we're supposed to see with that is that they experience something profound happening in their lives of the breaking in of God. Not really breaking in, the breaking out of God. It's like they didn't have the construct, they didn't have the capacity to understand that there's something happening already within them that can be freed and can still free us to a completely new and different life. And so my simple question for you as we read these is for you to just ponder what jumps out at you in these passages. We have the Spirit of God at the very beginning of creation that is that, that one that is the voice of God calling everything into being. Everything. God is in everything, everywhere. In Joel, we have the prophecy saying, you know, when you guys get it together, when you get yourself aligned with God, that's really what he's saying, you're going to see the Spirit show up in powerful ways if you'll have it. There's something required of us. The Spirit's already there. How are we cultivating it? Jesus responds to John's call to baptism, wanting to repent for whatever. We don't even know what that means, but wanting to get more in line with Jesus or more in line with God is the way to think about that. And all of a sudden, he experiences the release of the Spirit in his life. Paul does the same thing, goes around, helps people experience that same Spirit of God. This is the light bulb moment. This is the Japanese Satori moment where things start to transform in our lives. How has the Spirit worked in you? Well, one of the things I like about this book, Simplicity, Spirituality, and Service, uh, is that Epperly takes us uh, into a little bit of a walk with St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, I love that guy. Uh, and Francis uh, was born into wealth and privilege. His family had a business, and it was successful. Uh, he was a socialite. There wasn't a cocktail hour that Francis didn't love. <laughs> uh, Francis literally translated from the Italian means the Frenchman. So he's the guy with the cool accent going around to all the Italian parties with other people with cool accents, but he's got the cooler accent because Frenchmen are cooler than Italian. No offense, Sal, but, you know, pretty cool. <laughs> so he's, he's a man about town. He, he, he knows everybody. He's super popular. Everybody loves this guy. Apparently he was pretty cool with the ladies, too. We know from some account, not, not in a horrific way necessarily, but, uh, but he was a man about town, right? And he had a little change in his pocket. He had a little clout. had some social, uh, social clout as well, and he enjoyed his life. And like a lot of other people in his day, uh, they avoided as much as possible people who suffered leprosy. Uh, for Francis, that was, like, that was like the thing he most avoided was people who suffered from leprosy, the skin disease that eat, literally eats away uh, your limbs before your very eyes and can obviously be deadly. But there was one day when he was walking along the road that he came across a leper. And something within him said to stop and look. And he did. And something more within him called him to go and embrace the leper, which he did. And in the embrace, in that physical act of embracing, Francis's life was changed. He had his Satori moment where he least expected it. In the embrace of the one that he was reviled by in the embrace of this one he had othered so much he experienced the grace of God as he had never known it and he was so overwhelmed 
by the grace of God and could see everything so differently, now he understood what God was really wanting to do, what the gospel was really about, which was this good news of God really, really loves us and loves everyone. And if we're really engaged in that, in that way of shalom, it means that when we look upon everyone and everything, we see with eyes of love, not othering. And we cannot help but do something about it. He renounced his right to the family business and chose to live a life of simplicity, spirituality, and service. One day he went to a rundown chapel in San Damiano uh, near Assisi, and uh, as he would, to seek guidance from God, and he's in this dump of a place, and he heard this message from God, uh, restore the church. Restore the church. So he took it literally, and he gathered volunteers and supplies, and he restored uh, that chapel at San Damiano. And then he looked around, and there were a couple other rundown chapels, and so he fixed them up. And on the third one, he realized that maybe this was more uh, than just talking about brick and mortar. Well, in his journey, along came a woman named Claire. Uh, they never had any kind of romantic relationship, I don't think. Uh, she was more of a disciple of his, an advocate of what his, of his. When she was born, her mother had a vision and a voice from God saying, this woman, this daughter of yours is going to be a light to the world. So she partnered. As Claire grew up uh, and became an adult, she partnered with Francis in his work. Together, uh, they worked uh, in the communities to serve and to make the world a better place. A generation later, another Frenchman who was studying in Paris was named Bonaventure, read about Francis's work and Claire's work and was captivated by it and gave himself to simplicity, spirituality, and service. All three of them heard this same call from God, repair the spirit of the church. It is in ruins and needs to be restored. By repairing the spirit of the church, you will repair your own life and experience the healing of purpose you need to find meaning and joy. So apparently the church was in ruins. What the heck did that mean? Well, Epperly goes on and gives us a picture of the context. He said, well, while the church shaped the empire from that time when Constantine made Christianity, the empire's religion, while the church shaped the empire, the empire also shaped the church, hastening the movement within the church from experience to doctrine, relationship to authority, equality to hierarchy, and simplicity to affluence. The simplicity of the wandering Savior gave way to opulence among the elite and poverty among the majority. The church became the very thing Jesus came <laughs> to change. It went right back to the system that it had been. Francis Clare and Bonaventure inspire us to adventure spirituality to re-enchant and heal our spiritual practices and religious institutions and to reclaim our vocation as God's companions in healing the world. God's center is everywhere, and each moment can be a gateway to divinity. Spirit-filled and spirit-inspired, we breathe life into the world, providing spiritual resuscitation to revive faith in the future and healing for the world. That's what I hope for, for Crosswalk. Uh, and in the coming months and in the coming years, 
that we are so captivated by the love and the Spirit of God and so compelled by the shalom of God that we enter into the world, that we do this with each other, but we enter into the world to allow and foster and cultivate more of that shalom to happen. But the question that I have is how do we keep our anger down? How do we keep anger in its rightful place and space? Uh, because if we are captivated by shalom, really captivated by it, then every injustice we come across should make us very angry and upset. And it doesn't always. That's what happened with, with, the seat, with Francis. He was so captivated by the vision of shalom, which was everybody equal, harmony, uh, everything in balance. We take care of the creation. We take care of each other. We make sure that people's needs are met. There's accountability. All of the beautiful things that we, you could possibly imagine in a harmonious a world system. That's what shalom is after in its depths. All motivated and compelled by love. Anytime you see something that doesn't fit with that just sounds like a gong and a beautiful symphony. It doesn't fit. So things that we've known through history... Uh, gender inequality should bang the gong. Uh, LGBTQ inequality, bang the gong. Racial prejudice, bang the gong. Mistreatment of others, mistreatment of the vulnerable, bangs the gong. Anytime we see genocide, which continues to happen uh, kind of under the, the radar of the media, uh, it's not as popular in, in Africa, bang the gong. All of these things should bang the gong and make us upset. We should be upset. Because we as the people of God, people of the, the, the followers of Jesus, we see, the, we see through this lens. We're like, man, we got a long way to go. I can't believe we're doing that to this thing or these people. This must change. How do we temper that anger that should be there? You should be upset. You should be pissed at the injustice of the world. If you're not, you are not paying attention. <laughs> or you have fallen asleep and have stopped hearing the Spirit of God in your life. But what do we do with it? The last devotional that uh, was kicked out by Richard Rohr um, for 2023 and his year of devotionals on prophecy and being uh, full prophets he says this, and man, did this resonate with me. We need the wisdom of a full prophet, one who can love and yet criticize, one who can speak their words of correction out of an experience of gratitude, not anger. We have to pray to God to teach us that. I don't know how else we learn it. We can't learn it in our minds rationally. God has to soothe our angry hearts and spirits. God has to allow us to come to a place of freedom, a place of peace, and a place of fullness before we can speak as a prophet. A prophet must hold on to the truth of their anger, especially as it is directed toward injustice. But the danger of the anger is that when we let it control us, we're not a help anymore. That's why we have so many false prophets in America and in the world today. They are so angry. I want to sit there and say, I agree with you, that situation deserves anger, but you're not a good messenger because you're only making me more angry. You're feeding your anger by letting it become your ego. 
Of course, in my early life, that was me. I think what we see in the Hebrew prophets is autobiographical. My early social justice sermons at New Jerusalem uh, just edged people out of the room. I'm sure many of them thought, I don't think we want to hear Richard today. He's on one of his tirades. <laughs> they saw me at my angriest when I had just come back from Latin America and Africa. Anger is usually a necessary starting place, but it is never the full message. That's why I always go back to prayer. It's the only way for me. I rest in God, let God massage my heart for a while, cool me down and say, I love you. You don't have to save the world, Richard. You don't have to play the prophet, and you don't have to do anything except what I tell you to do. The more I rest there with God, the next time the words come out so differently. We've got to learn how to discern the Spirit. We have to listen to our own hearts and discern where the voices are coming from. Are they harsh, angry, hurtful, resentful, cynical voices telling us we've got to go out and do some righteous thing? Or are they coming from a place of freedom and a place of peace? prophet is the one who can be a faithful lover who is truly seeking the whole and seeking the good and not just seeking the self we can tell after a while the difference between someone who is operating out of their own anger and compulsions and someone who is operating out of the heart of God you know when I read that a week ago Friday I was just like oh that's telling my story because I know I've gotten sucked into the anger game. And my anger only made more people angry. It wasn't necessarily helpful, and I'm sorry for that, because that's not what I want to be about. I don't think that's what anybody wants to, well, maybe some people want to be about. That was not what we want to be about at Crosswalk, I don't think. And so how do we do that? How do we keep that? Well, Roar says to, to stay rooted in the presence of God, to let God calm us down and guide us forward. Uh, Epperly talks about uh, this in an indigenous way of crying for a vision. He took that word uh, from indigenous people. Um, and uh, they, had a, they had an exercise called the ghost dance, which was all about uh, trying to tie into what God was trying to say. It was a very spiritual thing. And this is what Epperly instructs us to do. Pray for guidance to experience God's path for your life. Gaze upon Christ and be open to his guidance. Pray for the patience to listen and respond to God's call within the events of your life. Then listen to the voice of God in nature, synchronous encounters, personal intuitions, and spiritual visions. What we hear may not be clear and obvious, but it will enable us to go forward one step at a time. Toward this end of this praying for a vision um, brings us to an opportunity to think about uh, communion in a different way. Because communion is meant to be a, a catalyst for us to remember our baptismal vows. And so I'm going to ask uh, people who can be helpful to uh, distribute. I've got the bread and the cup back there. Uh, it is a, uh, uh, what is it? It's a, it's a non-wheat, it's a gluten-free cracker. It's an almond mm -hmm. flour cracker, so everybody can enjoy that, uh, hopefully. Uh, so I invite you to take, an, unless you're a nut allergy person, then, well, sorry, we'll, <laughs> we'll work on that. Uh, but we have bread and cup uh, today. And as that's getting passed out, I want to say it's open to everybody. You don't have to be a member of the church. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy this today. Especially today's rendition is going to be um, a broader expansion of what most of the Christian tradition looks at when they think about uh, communion. Communion generally is looked at as John's baptism, frankly. Uh, that's, that's really what most churches remember with communion, is the baptism of John. As repent from your sins, get forgiven. 
And yet if we're to take the truth of what Paul was saying to the church at Ephesus, maybe that's only part of it. Maybe what this should be taking us to is a deeper spiritual experience. And to find some uh, instruction and motivation from this, uh, we turn to Julian of Norwich. Now, Julian of Norwich was an anchoress. An anchoress was a person who was so devoted to God in their time that they literally walled themselves into the church, which she did. So she <laughs> got her set up with her bed and a table and whatever sim simple life she was going to have and had people wall her in so she could not get out. There was room for people to come and give her food and water and all that, a crack for people to have conversation for wisdom and all that, but she stayed there the rest of her life in that confined space. And her work, um, I can't remember the title of it, I forgot to put it on the slide, but it had to do with her visions from God, is the oldest English publication from a woman that we have in the world. Pretty remarkable. And she had one particular vision, which I found really interesting. This one has kind of blown my mind uh, for some time because it reminds me of a, a something I've heard about the Buddhist tradition, which is you can sit and stare at a tree and know everything you need to know ever about life and the world and the presence of the greater other we call God. And this is sort of what she had. So this is her experience. Julie of Norwich says this, and in this, he, God, showed me a little thing, the quantity of a hazelnut lying in the palm of my hand as it seemed. So this is a vision she has of a hazelnut in the palm of her hand. And it was as round as any ball. I looked upon it with the eye of my understanding, so she's being contemplative about this, and thought, what may this be? And it was answered generally thus, it is all that is made. I marveled how it might last, for I thought it might suddenly have fallen to nothing for littleness. And as, and I was answered in my understanding, it lasts and ever shall, for God loves it. And so have all things their beginning by the love of God. In this little thing I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second that God loves it, and the third, that God keeps it. And I'm wondering how we might borrow from her experience of the hazelnut when we think about bread and cup beyond substitutionary atonement, repentant of sins, which is all good, it's good to stay in the flow of the, of the Spirit of God, but what if this whole thing is meant to do more for us in terms of welcoming in the Spirit than knowing that we're forgiven. And so I have you consider this almond cracker. Uh, this almond cracker uh, I found packaged in a box for sale at Costco. <laughs> I don't think that Costco made the crackers. In fact, I'm pretty sure they didn't, and I'm pretty sure there's some manufacturing place that makes a bazillion of these uh, very regularly but I don't think that that's the end of the story, where this factory, which has people and machinery making this whole thing and a packaging department and marketing people who do all that stuff, that's not the full story because somewhere before that, the ingredients for this almond cracker came. 
And maybe since California is the land of fruits and nuts, maybe these almonds <laughs> came from California that made this very cracker. This could very well be. And that means that somebody, people, uh, were cultivating those almond trees, that were making sure that the roots were going into healthy soil and providing nutrients for that tree and making sure that they had enough water uh, to grow and making sure that they were pruned right to get a good yield off those trees. It was a, a dance between humanity and creation and all of the things that make creation sing and, and sustain itself. All of that happening in here. I would say that if Julian of Norwich was with us today, she would say all that is is in this cracker as we think about it. Recognizing that we are created beings ourselves. We are flesh and blood. We are just like the cracker. We have a beginning. We have a beginning that was before our beginning with God. We have an ending, but we have uh, something else after that ending that is with God, based on the love of God, the presence of God, the Spirit of God, which is with us from beginning to end and beyond. And then we have this cup, which Jesus referred to as the cup of the new covenant. Not the old covenant, but the new covenant. And the new covenant was based on his gospel, his good news, which is that the Spirit of God is with us, all of us, every one of us, just like it was with him and then his disciples and then all those that opened up to it at Pentecost and all those ever since, including the Apostle Paul, those 12 at Ephesus, St. Francis, Claire, Bonaventure, Julian of Norwich, and so many others. That spirit flowing through this. Uh, and that's, that juice was created uh, not uh, just from the bottle of which I poured it out of, from the Welch's company, uh, but this actually came from real grapes, I think. Uh, have any of you, by the way, ever seen a grapevine? <laughs> that serves to answer the question, are there stupid questions? <laughs> you Napa Valley people, of course you've seen grapevines. Isn't it a mystery? Isn't it a marvel that this plant, this vine, this grapevine, uh, has roots that go into the ground, that get nurtured by the soil, pick up, pick up taste profiles from that soil and its environs, that also gets the water that comes from the sky, that gets its water from the oceans and other great lakes and things around the world, uh, that's always been here with us, it never ends, and that water makes its way in to help these vines grow, to create this grape that turns into grape juice and wine. We are so fortunate because we are seeing water being made into wine every single year here in Napa Valley. The miracle still continues. This is the Spirit of God. This is life. This is us. Maybe this is a much bigger opening that Jesus invited us into than simple repentance of sins and making sure you get your slate clean before you die. So consider the cracker made of almonds sprinkled with salt, an element that never, ever goes away. This is you and me and everything, loved and held by God. Take and eat. And this cup of the new covenant, reminding us that we are loved that the Spirit of God is with us and in us and for us, guiding us, supporting us, strengthening us, so many things. This is life. This is the grape. This is you. This is me. This is everything. Loved by God. Take and drink. To end today, 
want you to, I invite you uh, to join me in saying out loud this prayer that Epperly gave us at the end of his first chapter. It's a guide, it's a, it's a wish, it's a, an affirmation, it's uh, a hope for what we can be, it's aspirational, but let's hope it's also genuine. Let's say it together. Loving Creator, give me wisdom for the living of these days. Help me to maintain hope for the future. In listening, let me find a path forward where I perceive no way ahead. Let me find guidance and companionship with Francis, Claire, and Bonaventure. Let me see your face in all creation, especially in the least of those in the human and non-human worlds. Let my listening inspire action to repair my community, church, and world. In the name of the healer Jesus, amen. Let it be so. Thank you so much for coming today to kick off our January. I think it's going to be a fun series together. We're going to learn a lot, grow a lot. Let's hope so. Thanks. See you next week. All right.